Welcome to the first episode of MedTech POV, a podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the leading trade organization for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, the president and CEO of AdvaMed. Here at MedTech POV Podcast, we'll give you an up-close look at what's going on in the medical technology community. Tune in to each episode for conversations with today's leaders, both inside and outside of our industry, about business, policy, and current events. In this episode, we have with us General James Mattis, a four-star Marine General who spent more than 40 years commanding forces in the Persian Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq War, and of course, as former Secretary of Defense. He's a true leader. He's one of the best thinkers of our time, and perhaps above all, he's a servant of our country in every sense of the word. General Mattis spoke to our board a few weeks ago, and it was such a great discussion, we decided to share the Q&A portion with you all here today. Listen in as we pick his brain about everything from COVID-19 and international trade relations to how he got his famous call sign, Chaos. And what book does General Mattis think every MedTech leader should read? You've got to listen to find out. A crisis is a very harsh auditor of leadership. It's very, very harsh. It searches out any cracks in a leader's competence or their character. And I look back on my 40 years in the Marine Infantry, part of the Naval Service, and it seems like we just careened from one crisis to another. So all of you in the room paid your taxes so that I could pay my tuition, basically, to learn about how you deal with crises, because you can in effect, organize yourself to plan for the unplanned events. But some thoughts on leadership in a time of COVID and a crisis, because also you've probably been very busy reacting and adapting, and sometimes you don't have as much time for reflection of what you're learning. And I used to get an awful lot of value, frankly, because every about four years, the military pulls you out of your job and sends you to school for a year. So you had some time to look back. And one thing, leadership is always unique to its situation that you're in, and you've got to adopt or marry your time. But really defining the issue is important. I I think it was Einstein who was asked, how would you organize your thoughts? You know, he's a pretty smart guy. And people say, how would you organize your thoughts if you had one hour to save the world? And he responded without hesitation saying, well, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem and I'd save the world in five. And why do I bring it up? It's because in a crisis, defining reality is the leader's number one responsibility. You must define reality. You have to recognize that people crave normality. They want things to be normal again. I mean, Herbert Hoover in 1920, following World War One and the global flu pandemic, he ran on a platform calling for a return to normalcy. That was his whole platform, return to normalcy. And you're going to find sometimes as you go into a crisis, people don't want to let loose of the normal. They want to stay wedded to the processes and that sort of thing. And you cannot allow your people to deny reality. You can't let them do that because a crisis is, by its very nature, unpredictable. That's what makes it, I think, a crisis. And there's a good medieval tale that really puts this in context, that it's not just an intellectual crisis. 
And basically, a traveler on the road runs into two guys on the road to London. And one of them is named Plague, and the other one is named Fear. And the traveler said, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you going to London? And the guy named Plague says, well, we're going to go up to London and kill 10,000 people. And the traveler looked at him and said, you can really do that? And he said, oh, no, no, I can only kill a couple hundred. Fear will kill the rest. In Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, there's a line in there I love. It says, a sad soul can kill you quicker than a germ. And you stop and think about the morale of your own team when you're trying to get them to be in customer-facing jobs, when literally they could be putting their life on the line back last February, March, April. We didn't know what all we were dealing with. We didn't know about the mortality rate and all. So you have to organize for this very changed environment. You must reorganize for it unless you're simply organized for crisis. And basically, no human organization can always stay in crisis mode. You're going to fall back into lessons learned and this sort of thing. And hopefully, you take some of the lessons from the crisis so you have more of a shock absorber. But you're going to, when a crisis hits, you're going to have to reorganize into that near-term current operational team that you've got, keeping the, we call it the naval service damage control. You're just trying to keep the ship afloat. Meanwhile, you've got some people who are working on really repairing it and putting it back in fighting trim just as quickly as you can. I think, too, that what you tell your folks to do in the day-to-day -day running of your organization needs to leave room for their initiative and aggressiveness. And the reason I say that is, go back to my earliest comment that crises are revelatory. If you don't leave room for them to improvise, adapt, and overcome, to use their initiative and aggressiveness, and those are the two qualities in the Navy and the Marines we look for when we're promoting people, if you don't leave room for them to practice their initiative in day-to-day -day operations, if you're not coaching them to get better and to think two levels above, then when the crisis hits, you lose a lot of the nimbleness that you really need. So what we do in the military, we have something called commander's intent. So you say, my purpose is, my aim is. I'll give you an example. I want to seize the bridges over the Tigris River before the, the enemy has a chance to blow them. We're going to operate on two lines of effort. And at the end state is, I want to be north of the Tigris and prepared to support the Army's attack on Baghdad by this day. Notice I didn't put much in there about how we're going to do it, because I wanted the initiative and they knew what I wanted. They knew the basic timeline. They had a pretty good idea of the larger scheme. And now I leave it to the initiative and aggressive. If I had to put it in musical terms, were I Mozart, and I'm not, I would have written my scores of music with only one third of the notes and left a whole lot of room so my, my other folks who are going to play the oboes and the tubas could add their own notes. Now, you could say, well, that's not always going to be very neat. And you're right. It might sound pretty discordant at times. But if you can create transparency and alignment with your team during day-to-day -day operations when the crisis hits, they will still be aligned in the right direction. And yes, you need feedback loops and you need to make sure you're, you're guiding them in the crisis, but they'll be much more apt to use their initiative and aggressiveness at that point. I think too that you've got to watch for ethics. When a crisis hits, 
a lot of SOPs go away, some internal controls are relaxed, you're moving quickly. And if you have people who like to run the ethical sidelines, they're probably going to make a mistake or take a chance that you can't take reputationally or legally for your outfit. So try to keep everyone running the ethical midfield. So when they make a mistake, you're in a coaching mode as you guide them back into the, the center field. They didn't step out of bounds. If they're running the sidelines, they make a mistake, they're out of bounds. And either the SEC or the regulatory people or FDA, FTC are going to be in there. And boy, there's going to be hell to pay. But try to keep the ethical rewards. Any institution gets the behavior rewards. Keep those rewards for people staying inside that center area and make sure they know if they've got to go outside, they got to call you. That becomes a corporate level decision, not that one you don't delegate. And probably in that regard, let me just close by saying that you need to know the difference between a mistake and a lack of discipline. Because, I mean, I've made more mistakes than probably anybody I ever met in the Marine Corps around there so darn long. I remember once I managed to get 1,250 sailors, Marines, and Arabs in my infantry battalion surrounded in the middle of an open desert. Now, that's almost impossible. I mean, that, that goes beyond stupid even, okay? So my guys got me out of that job. You know you're not too smart when your mortar guys are getting out, putting up four mortars pointing north and four mortars pointing south in the middle of the desert. You know, that that's a sure indication that you're not brilliant, okay? They got me out of the jam, and later that day, all the assault battalion commanders got called to the colonels. I was a lieutenant colonel, battalion commander. Colonel calls together, and the innocent people, this was in the liberation of Kuwait and Kuwait City, and he said, the Iraqi army is killing innocent people in the streets of Kuwait City. We've got to break through now. It was getting towards dark. We'd hope to wait until the next day. And so we got our orders. We all turned to go back to our units and, and get them underway and, and break through to the city. And he called me over. He said, hey, Jim, come here for a minute. I came over and he said, did you learn anything today? I said, yes, sir. He said, okay. Turn around and walked away. No long lecture, no long chewing me out, and they certainly could have done it. He'd seen it through his binoculars, exactly what happened. Open desert, couldn't hide it. But he knew I'd made a mistake. I'd learned from it. It wasn't a lack of discipline. We were all exhausted. We've been fighting without sleep for about three days. You know what happened to your cognitive ability, and I blew it. I mean, a leader is a sentinel. You don't let your unit get into that kind of thing. But my point is that if you're going to have initiative and aggressiveness and reward it so your unit stays, your organization stays nimble, there's mistakes that are going to be made. And you don't allow lack of discipline. In the Naval Service, if you run your ship aground, you're going to be drop kicked through the goalposts of life. That's all there is to it. It's the varsity. You're held accountable, okay? Sexual harassment is not a mistake, for example. Pilfering from the uh, company funds is not a mistake. That's a lack of discipline. That's different. On that case, remember, even Jesus of Nazareth had one out of 12 go to crap on him. So once in a while, you got to fire somebody, okay? But try to not get into a position where every mistake is, is made legal or is made a black mark on somebody's uh, personnel file. So let me stop there because I'd really like to see uh, Kevin and Scott, what's on your guys' minds, on your team's mind. But hopefully that's enough to kind of prime the pump a little bit here. Well, General, that, that's great, and yeah, it's such great lessons for all of us. I was thinking as you were talking how much 
we would have enjoyed hearing this in February of last year before the crisis hit us. We're all going through this very difficult time right now of crisis management and leading companies through a very difficult time. At some point, we're going to transition back to normal or some form of normal. In your time in the military and also as a Secretary of Defense, you've led through crisis and you've led coming out of crisis and you've led in times of normalcy as well. Can you reflect a little bit on the second half of those experiences post-crisis and some lessons that might benefit all of us there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll tell you that the real challenge, Scott, is what do you retain? Because you can also learn bad lessons in a crisis. There are things you don't want to continue doing. There are things that you need to regain control of sufficient to carry out the due diligence of a leader and make sure you're not handicapping yourself for the future. But looking back with a no holds barred, what did we learn from this? Let me give you one example, because in the personnel area is where you oftentimes find the processes could have let you down. In the Vietnam War, we constantly sent over individual replacements. Units just stayed in the fight. Everybody was there on a 12-month or by the time you check in, maybe most of them are on a six-month deployment, six months left, or the new guy checks in, he's got 12 months in front of him, and we said, we will never do that again. We will take entire units out. We'll keep the one-third who are staying in, who are not getting out of the military, the veterans. We'll bring in new NCOs and officers. They'll train together. We'll get the new recruits in, and as a unit, they will then go over well-trained. They know each other. Strangers don't fight well together. What we had learned was that the falling shorts of many units was directly related to the fact they didn't know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And so when you have a crisis like a war, and a war to us is just a big auditor, it's all it is, so battle is the same, then what you want to do is look at what should you retain. But you've got to be careful, like I mentioned earlier. I brought a psychologist, psychiatrist down from a Southern California school when my unit that had been in two wars was just getting the warning order. We hadn't been home for 60 days in some case, we had to go back in. And I brought her down, she didn't know anything about the military, but I said, I want you to just wander around, talk to them and tell me what your sense is. As a leader, you need multiple perspectives brought to you, diverse perspectives brought to you, or you're going to get ambushed. And she came back in about a week later, had talked to me and said, you have dramatic instance fallacy throughout your division. 23,000 sailors and Marines. I'd never heard the words before. She said, they've been to war. They've been in some very dramatic moments. Those instances are burned into their mind. And I was thinking, having been in more than one war, I knew what she meant. You know, some things seem like they always happened 20 seconds ago. They never get old. And she said, and it's a fallacy. They're going to go back over thinking their worst day on the last deployment is going to be what they're going into. And we were going into a situation where we were going to be, our battlefield would also be a humanitarian field full of innocent people in Western Iraq, angry, upset, but innocent people. So we had to change the whole planning around. What am I saying? Make sure that during the recovery phase, you bring people in who can assess where you're really at because you too have been clouded by the experience of the crisis and often scarred and scared is what we talk about. So you've got to get a good, accurate view of it. And if you're all the way up to CEO, I know in the 
military, a general is the closest thing to God on earth. They laugh at your jokes, even if they're not funny. You know, everything's wonderful. But I kept around me one army sergeant major ranger and one navy captain, old sea dog. And those two guys didn't give a damn what I thought of them. And they would walk in and they would tell me, close the door, and they'd say if they thought I'd give an incorrect direction or I was missing something in my assessment. And you need to keep someone around who can also do that for you and catch things you don't know. I also had an intel person, I can talk about that later, who was constantly looking at the intel also to see if I was starting to live in a fantasy world. Yeah. Remember, a leader's got to define reality. Hopefully that helps a little bit, Scott. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank you for that. The other thing I wanted to ask before I open it up to the audience more broadly, you've been through wars and tremendous civil unrest in other countries. You've seen it many times over. Through the course of the summer and into the election season this year and then into January, we had sort of a similar feeling of unrest throughout our country, starting with the racial unrest and then the election and the turmoil that went with that. It strikes me that in the military, you don't have that same level of racial division and challenge that we might see in the country at large. Can you re reflect on your military experience and what lessons we could learn as a broad citizenry from the integration that exists there? Yeah, I mean, we recruit from America and America was born with a birth defect, slavery imported from the old world. We're still working to correct the manifestations down over the years. We're doing better. I think if Martin Luther King was back with us today, he would agree we're doing a lot better. I think he'd be amazed at some of the prize. But America will always focus on its falling short. It's the nature of a democracy to always look at the areas where we're not doing what we should be doing. And like a dog with a bone, we will gnaw on that. And the different, I mean, I've been all around the world, like you said, and I've seen tribal hatreds or whatever you want to call it, tear nations apart. I've seen it turn to violence. I never thought I would see what happened on January 6th, a very sad day in our history. But I never thought it would be here. But the reason I thought it wouldn't be here is because Americans are at least trying to do something about it. That's why I've, I've got to give you a short story here, Scott. Mm -hmm. You see right over my shoulder, there's a little picture here. It's 29 sailors and Marines who are around me for in a place called Al-Anbar province. You heard of yeah. maybe the Sunni Triangle, Fallujah, Ramadi, these, these very difficult spots. And of those 29 sailors and Marines in the summer of 2004, 17 would be killed or wounded around me in four months. It was a very tough time. And I was a two-star general. And they'd convey me all around the battlefield, their gunners, the communicators, aide-de-camp, drivers, all those kind of guys, four vehicles. And we pulled into a place one night and in the middle of the night, we'd had trouble even fighting our way through outposts in the middle of nowhere, western Euphrates River Valley. And this lieutenant, fresh out of undergraduate school a year before, and his 40 sailors Marines were to stop what we called a rat line, foreign fighters coming from Syria, headed to Baghdad. And if they get to Baghdad, they're going to kill a lot of innocent people. So the sun came up, and I'm sitting on the ground with the lieutenant inside his perimeter there, and he showed me where he's been fighting casualties he's taken, number of enemies intercepted and taken out. He said, by the way, we caught a guy putting a bomb on the road you came in on last night. Well, that's kind of personal. And he said, by the way, he said he lived in London for two years and he went to school in Switzerland and speaks perfect English. You want to talk to him? I said, sure. So they brought him over. And he wasn't a real happy fellow. And 
Marine brought him over and I had him sit down in the dirt next to me and Marine cut the little plastic handcuffs off and got him some coffee shaking like a leaf. It wasn't a good night for him. You know, he's out there with his two R2 around his wheelbarrow digging a hole and he looks up and there's five guys in camouflage utilities with automatic weapons pointed at him. He knows his 401ks in a lot of trouble. So I said, what are you doing this for? I could tell he was Sunni. And I said, you're Sunni. We're the Marines. We're the only friends you got out here. Why are you trying to kill us? He said, oh, you Jews, you Americans, you're, you're just out to steal the oil and stuff. And I said, well, actually, we're not. I pay for my gas when I pump it. But you're an educated man. I don't have time to waste for you and talk like this. So a Marine stepped forward to take him away. And he said, can I sit here for a minute, General? I said, sure. So a Marine stepped back. And he said, I just don't like having foreign soldiers in my country. I can respect that. I wouldn't want, want them in my country. And so we talked for a little bit about his, his family, wife and two girls. They lived down on the river about 10 kilometers away. So it's getting hot. And it's about time for me to move on to the next outpost. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, am I going to jail? I said, oh, yeah, you'll be wearing an orange jumpsuit for a good long time for this stunt. You're lucky you're not dead. But then, and I wanted you all to hear this question he asked me then. He said, General, do you think if I'm a model prisoner and my family and I immigrate to America when I get out of jail? Mm. Now stop and think wow. about that. On our worst day, when we're so unhappy with ourselves, when we won't talk to people because they voted for someone else, when they somehow seem to be different than us. I mean, I've learned the two worst words in the entire vocabulary are not the dirty words I was told never to say by my mother. It's us and them. Mm. And we had better come back to we the people in this country because even on our worst days, here was a guy who was so full of hate, he was out to kill us, but the example of America could reach halfway around the world and reach him. We'd better get back to what Martin Luther King said was the right way to measure people by their character. We'd better get back to having a social contract with each other that brings us together and get over this scorching rhetoric and scoring points against each other. Because right now I'm more worried about that than the Chinese Navy landing their troops in California and taking over the state, okay? I mean, this is a serious problem. Back over to you, Scott. Thank you for that answer and for that story. That is incredibly powerful and very helpful to hear your perspective on that. We have a hand raised from Mike Minogue. Mike is our incoming chairman at, from Abiumad. Mike, are you? Yeah, can you hear me okay? We can. Sir, thank you for your service and thanks for the insight today. We use you as an example. We have your picture and a slide up for our learning institution at Abiumad. And it, it's the story about studying books and why you're, they're helpful in crisis. So what's your number one book you'd recommend to the CEOs here? So that's my micro question. And the second one is a macro question. If you were running a company, would you now invest and go to China? Would you put manufacturing there? Would you launch products there? How should we strategize and move into China in the future? Thanks for the insight. Yeah, Mike. And thank you, Mike, for the, I think you're the uh, author of the MVP VET program where you take veterans coming out and help them get a leg into the industry, that's more important than any speech they get from a general coming out of the military. The dignity of a job, the, the promise of a future, 
just I, I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing. That sort of thing just reminds us that we're not, I wasn't in the Marine Corps for 40 years. I was in the U.S. Marine Corps. We belong to you, and thank you for what you're doing. The book that I carried everywhere, especially when I was going into uh, being testimony in front of the Senate or going to the White House so that I wouldn't get too angry about what I was being queried about, is Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. To me, it's the one... I mean, I wore out so many copies of that carrying it in my rucksack around the world. But also, there's one out now by Ryan Holiday. It's called uh, The Daily Stoic. And because leaders have to deal with life as it comes to them, not the way they want it to be, I find Ryan Holiday's book, The Daily Stoic, to be one that kind of keeps you with a kind of a positive stance in the world. And it completely eradicate any sense of victimhood, self-pity, cynicism. It tells you there's always options you have to help your people. And so I'd probably go with Ryan Holiday's as a more current topical, the Daily Stoic. And one thing, too, I would just tell you, you, you thank me for my service. I want you to know all of you. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care if you're male, female, or if you classify yourself as something else, I don't care if you're black, white, brown, red, yellow, whatever, you're worth it, okay? You are worth every day. I never felt like I was carrying a burden. This great big experiment you and I call America, and every one of you is worth it, so long as you use the freedom to help others. You know, let's just help each other in this world. On the investing and going to China, here's what's happened and why, why it's a difficult one, I think, Mike, to answer. Over the last 30 years, Republican and Democrat administrations truly believe if we help China become rich, China will become a responsible nation. China will become a more free nation, live by the rules of the road, international, the WTO rules, and, and this sort of thing. It is now very clear in America, North America, and Europe, in Latin America, and certainly in Asia, this isn't the case. It is now not just a market as we thought of it for the last 30 years. We wanted the people of China to, to rise. It is now a geopolitical competitor. And so there is risk involved going into China now. The Chinese Communist Party is not going to relent and liberalize because they would lose power. There are an ideology that won't do that. They want the nations around them, and I've visited all of them from South Korea and Japan to Vietnam and to India. They want them all to be tribute states. They violate the sovereign decisions on diplomacy, on economics, on security. And so we're going to have to cooperate with China where we can, for example, in climate change or in pandemics or maybe on nuclear proliferation. But we're going to have to confront China where they decide to violate other people's sovereignty as they have in India, as they have in the South China Sea. Let me give you a short story, Mike, that, that sums up my concern. I meet my Chinese counterpart in Beijing. We have a good talk. I invite him to Washington, invite him to uh, Mount Vernon, and we fly him down there and the actor who plays General Washington takes him on a tour through the house and I point out the key to the Bastille that Lafayette gave Washington and said, you see, revolutionary generals let people, political prisoners, out of jail. Well, I'm not paid to be subtle in the Department of Defense. You know, I tell it like it is. And so he and I went for a walk in the wood just with an interpreter as our staff got ready for a big dinner there that night that we would join them at. 
And I'm walking with them and I said, are you aware of how much the hardworking Chinese people have benefited from the international system that the Americans and other United Nations put in place after World War II from lessons learned? And he stopped and he said, yes, and we owe the Americans most for that. I said, then when are we going to figure out how we're going to deal with one another, manage each other's problems when we step on each other's toes, two nuclear-armed superpowers? And I said, and I remind you, we were not part of your 100 years of humiliation that you keep bringing up. That wasn't us. That wasn't America. And he said, then why did you disinvite us publicly from the biggest naval exercise in the world in the Pacific this year, only six weeks before it went? I said, well, Mr. Minister, your president had promised President Obama, previous administration, you would not militarize the Spratly Islands. Six weeks before the exercise, you put missiles in the Spratlys. So what do you expect me to do? And I said, look, either your military doesn't obey civilian control, civilian orders, which worries me greatly, or your president was lying to us, which worries me greatly. So tell me what I should be worried about. He said, oh, but Mr. Secretary, those were defensive weapons. I started smiling at him. I said, I've been shot at. Let's remember, we're both generals here. I rented a suit to talk to you tonight, okay? The bottom line is, I've been shot at by defensive weapon and offensive weapon. I don't know the difference. But my point is, Mike, that we had better put together some philosophical, strategic level discussions so we can answer your question. Because right now, we don't know how to answer the question. We're talking about South China Sea one day, Taiwan the next. We're talking about Hong Kong today, the Uyghurs tomorrow, and the attacks on the Indian soldiers the day after that. There's no strategic level discussion like Reagan and Gorbachev, like Secretary Schultz and Shrevernadze, who got rid of the nuclear weapon. We don't have that going on. Until we figure that out, I would have your CFO keeping a weather eye on any investments inside China, because you could suddenly find yourself invested in something connected to the People's Liberation Army and the Chinese Communist Party, and you've suddenly been sanctioned, they've been sanctioned, and you lose the entire investment. I can't give you a better answer than that than be very watchful of any connection to their security services. And at times, it's very hard to spot because they're so embedded in the state-owned enterprises. All right. I don't see any other hands raised, but I'm sure there are lots of questions. I've got one here for you, General. Give us your thoughts, if you can, on isolationism following the pandemic. Are we more likely to move toward that, or are we more likely to move away from that once we're beyond the pandemic period? Well, I think we're going to see an impact on supply chains where we'll see, I mean, probably more of it in Mexico that maybe in the past we went out to China with, that sort of thing. But globalization is not a policy. It's a reality, I think. And you remember me saying, don't get into a fight with reality. I think we're going to see continued globalization, integration across the planet. But I think, too, America is going to be much more multilateral for the next four years than it was in the last four. I think we're going back to an engagement with the world economically. I don't think we'll be using sanctions quite as liberally or or, uh, tariffs as we've seen in the past. I think we'll actually treat our allies better than we treat our adversaries, which will be a change in the tone. So I think we're going to see a degree of unilateralism, but probably in the long run where it makes sense. 
but not to the point of becoming an ideology and doing ideologically what we would never do if we were using some good problem-solving techniques. I think you don't want to have single sources of supply, for example, that are in potentially adversarial countries. So you'll see some of that pullback, but I think you'll see a lot more outgrowth. America's at its best when it's a team player. It's going to play on the global stage economically and diplomatically. And I think we're also going to see less of a militaristic approach to our foreign policy that we've had for the last 25 years. That's not a political statement that Republican and Democrats, I think, have militarized, over-militarized our foreign policy. We've got to get back to engaging more with the world geopolitically and economically and engaging with large military footprints less and going back to a much more maritime strategy in the security realm. So let me ask you a question just about the world more broadly in foreign policy. You and I have talked before, and and you were clear you didn't want to go back and sort of relive recent history or relitigate issues of the past four years. But the reality is we're going to see a different foreign policy and a different style with the incoming administration that we've seen in the past few years. As you look around the globe, are there pockets where you see this new approach or their approach going back to more Obama-style foreign policy that will be very advantageous to us? And there are other areas where it troubles you a little bit. Can you just generally give us your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are areas of continuity that we should look at. For example, the U.S.-India relationship was good when I was briefed by the Obama administration when I was coming into my office. And I think we actually continued that from what I saw of Secretary Blinken, the Secretary of State's testimony in front of the Senate, he agreed. I think, too, this idea that our allies have to pay more for their defense, I think we treated them far too coarsely in public. But I mean, that first shows up by John F. Kennedy, the first one to call the Europeans freeloaders. So this is not a a new issue. And I think that there we'll see the Biden camp being pretty assertive that we're not going to... Here, here's the way I put it when I went to NATO after I was Secretary of Defense. I'd been a, a NATO Supreme Allied Commander, knew most of the people in the room. I said, you've heard this before. Americans cannot continue to pay 4% for national defense, and you pay one3 It's now manifested politically. I said, don't ask me to go back to America until American parents they have to sacrifice money for education, health care, infrastructure, because they have to care more about your children's freedom than you care. We're all going to have to work together here. We see what China's doing. We see what Russia's doing. So some of it will be continuity, I think, frankly, Scott, in a number of areas. But the tone will change significantly to one of respect. I think we will rebuild trust, but it's going to be a long road back because we lo- broke a lot of trust with some of our transactional approaches and our uh, our abrupt changes. I wouldn't even call it policy, just abrupt direction changes in all sorts of things. So it's going to be a, a longer road back for them. But I think, too, that when you look at what happened with India, when you look at the new view of China across Europe, across Asia, when you look at what would be another example, the Abraham Accords, yeah. the tectonic shift, yeah. A significant positive shift in the Middle East. So I think you're going to see some continuity in there, but I think also you're going to see us once again becoming a more trusted ally. 
among like-minded nations, democracies, to put it bluntly. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on the Abraham Accords? I wanted to ask you about that because it felt like in some cases it was a bit overlooked as meaningful progress. And it sounds like from what you're saying, you do see it as progress directly in some countries, but maybe more broadly in the Middle East that will translate over the next 15 or 20 years. Is that right? Uh, I think your instincts on this are exactly right, Scott. This is a sea change in the Middle East. And a lot of people have stepped up and said, I was the author on this one. Everyone who knows what happened and has been over there knows it was the crown prince of United Arab Emirates who had the political courage and the strategic vision to initiate this. He drew in Bahrain that had to have Saudi Arabia's permission to join because it's 75%, 80% of their federal budget comes from Saudi Arabia. Of course, that adds to Egypt and Jordan already. And as you look at our effort to reduce American military influence on our foreign policy, it's always got to be there. I mean, my job really was not just to run military operations. It was to make sure our diplomats spoke from a position of authority and try to keep the peace for one more year, one more month, one more week, one more day, one more hour, so the diplomats could do their job. So here we have now where the diplomats have actually pulled this off. And as the Arab countries and Israel, as they get together, that is a much more formidable counter to Iran. And that means that we don't have to carry a disproportionate share. It also means it's got a calming effect, I think, on the region. So we'll see how it plays out. But this is a wholly positive effort. The Americans did a good job, I thought, the last administration of supporting it. And I think that we'll see more progress along these lines. And I think that in the long run, we'll look back on that as probably the the most significant shift in probably the last 40 years in the Middle East. It sounds like maybe, General, in a meaningful way, it should change perhaps the way some of our companies think about interacting in the Middle East as well, given the progress we've made. Maybe a little less volatile and maybe a little more constant. Is that right? Uh, It's absolutely right. I believe the latest count in Dubai, Israeli tourists for the Hanukkah season, the Hanukkah holiday, was over 40,000. 40,000 Israelis can't all be wrong. There's a democracy going to an Arab country, very tolerant Arab country. In the U.S. military, we call UAE little Sparta, because every time we're in a jam, they're right there alongside us. And their troops can really fight. They're good troops. They're disciplined, they're ethical, they're well-led, and they actually train their Air Force and their Army with our troops. So this is a country, I think, that we're going to see leading by example. And change never comes fast enough for those who want it right away. But this is pretty significant. And the number one deal going on in UAE for the last 40 days has been UAE-Israel companies dealing back and forth. So there's your indicator. You, uh, you wrote a fabulous book recently, Call Sign Chaos, and I've shared that with many of our board members. I've uh, learned a lot from reading it myself. In the book, you talk about, and I should say as we wrap up here, President Washington, General Washington, being one of the leaders that you've looked to as a hero in your mind. Give us just a, a few minutes on that as well. Why does he stand out as a leader you admire so much? We all have to have mental models. You have to remain your authentic self, but you want to study how other people did things, what worked for them. 
And I was out in the Mojave Desert, and I got about 15 books on George Washington. I was commanding a regiment and not much to do out there other than read and go out in the field. And I was walking down to my operations officer's shop one day. He is from Brooklyn. He spoke funny, you know, like those people from Brooklyn do. And I just had another great idea. And so as I was walking out after telling my latest idea, he said, I saw chaos written on his whiteboard. I said, what's that about? And he said, uh, oh, you, you don't need to worry about that. That's, well, oh, yes, I do. Now he's got my attention. No, no, I, what, what's it about? He didn't want to tell me. So I got it out of him. And it was, Colonel has another outstanding suggestion. And so my irreverent troops had nicknamed me Chaos. And that's how I got my call sign. I, I thought I'd keep it. But the reason I kept it, Scott, answers your question. I was reading about George Washington, trying to figure out how did he take a bunch of free men who wanted to be just free of the king and get them to surrender their individuality to be part of an army, because if they didn't, they were going to lose on a battlefield and probably be dead. And with French help, how did he humble the Redcoats who would defeat Napoleon a few years later? How did he do it? And it's the most boring thing as I went through books and started dog-earing it and going back and forth. He would listen to everybody that he was leading. He would listen to the French. He would listen to everyone. And he would learn from them. He didn't just listen to go off and do what he was going to do in the first place. He would listen and willing to be persuaded to do something different. And that showed respect. And then he would try to help them. He would help the French by giving them scouts when the French army showed up. He would help the Delaware guys to understand what the British guys were saying, literally. Mm. He actually put a translator in some of the in some of the units. But eventually, watermen from Delaware and Massachusetts, the rebels under Virginia grandees, with guys from South Carolina who couldn't understand anybody the way they talked, he put them together and it worked. And he would listen and he would learn and he would help them. Then he would lead. And I, I just, after a while, when I was sitting there thinking of my chaos and my brilliant ideas, I started doing more listening. And I was amazed at how much more I got. So it was, it was like a proven way to learn to lead, but I was able to adapt it to my own, at sometimes overly cocky personality. So that's kind of why, why I, I mean, it's boring as all get out, but it works. It still works to this day when I'm in college campuses and places like that. Yeah, that's, that's great. We've, uh, we've reached the end of our time. I had one very critical question that I wanted to ask you. You mentioned the name Chaos, the nickname, but you didn't explain to us how you got the nickname Mad Dog. Can you share that for us? Yeah, I can, Scott, because this shows how life doesn't give you what you want at times. <laughs> There's a sad side of this. I've had to write hundreds of next to kin letters. You know, it comes with the territory. We have to write to a mother, father, uh, a young widow that their loved one is not coming home. And one day we were sitting there outside Fallujah, we were fighting, and it must have been a slow news day because one of my guys was reading the Stars and Stripes newspaper you get when you're overseas. It's the only newspaper you can get. And he says, hey, somebody's written an article says it you're called Mad Dog. I said, I'm not called Mad Dog. He says, I know, we all know you're chaos, but they're calling you Mad Dog. And it was completely made up by the news on a slow news day, Scott. I wish I could give you some real 
some real great story of, you know, I had eight guys cornered in a bar fight or something, but sorry, it just uh, made up by the press and, and not one I was overly happy with when you think of the number of times I've had to sign those terribly sad letters to, uh, yeah. the gold star families but i keep a sense of humor about it and when they ask me when they when somebody called me i won't answer them until they call me something else <laughs> well that's great well general thank you for your time with us today let me end by just saying this one i know everyone would share this view we thank you for your service to our country and the military i reflect back during uh, the transition to the trump administration when many people may have chosen not to step in and serve and in a difficult time, you made a different decision and you decided to come in and serve your country as Secretary of Defense as well. I always found that to be incredibly honorable and I'm grateful for your service. And when you departed, you departed on the right terms in the right way. And uh, it made all of us who admired you proud. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for your service to the country. We thank you for taking time to be with us today. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure, Scott, and good luck to all of you. Uh, you carry a lot of hopes on your shoulders, both in your company and certainly in, in various hospitals around the world. So thanks for having me. Honored to be with you and good luck. Thank you for joining us for this episode of MedTech POV. For more information and to subscribe to our podcast, go to advamed.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to your favorite streaming platform. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of MedTech TOV.